Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 216 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And today is week seven on Bilbo's poem. And this week, we're going to remember the context. Like, remember, there was actually a, a narrative. If you, if you cast your minds back far enough, you may recall that this poem is actually embedded in a significantly larger narrative. So we're going to... Um, we're going to go back and look at that. Uh, and um, yeah, Captain Moe is saying that he feared that we had 200 more weeks left on the poem. Not quite. Not on this poem. Um, not quite. Although I really liked um, uh, Dan's verse that he wrote. I sit beside the fire and think of all the stanzas read of iambic verse, verse we've analyzed and nothing left unsaid. Uh, very good, Dan. Very, very well played there. Um, so anyway, we're going to return uh, to the narrative and we're going to, um, of course, then we're going to be thinking about the poem. Um, we need to draw some conclusions. We need to kind of bring things together a little bit. And I wanted to do that, as I said last week, in the context of the larger narrative. Um, what is not only interesting about what Bilbo's saying, um, as we've been looking at uh, in this poem, but what he's saying in this particular context. Why is he saying it right now? Um, why, why did this come up in the first place, right? Why are we reading this poem? Um, so <clears throat> anyway, that's, um, that's, that's where we're going to be headed here this evening. First, a couple quick announcements, and some of uh, these are very exciting and upcoming announcements. Um, I am glad to say that I have two happy updates about regional moots. We've been having some regional moot struggles with uh, finding venues, a bunch of places. It's very understandable. Um, uh, been having a hard time finding the right place to be and making sure that everything's sorted out. So, you know, we've been uh, on uh, almost a kind of mini hiatus, um, we delayed TexMoot um, uh, before we were going to do TexMoot. We were going to do TexMoot this weekend, this coming weekend, I think, was when it was originally supposed to be. But now um, we are going to be doing, um, uh, we're going to be doing TexMoot soon instead. So TexMoot is going to be on March 26th. It's definitely happening March 26th. Austin, Texas. Um, we The registration isn't quite open yet, but it will be open very soon, within a couple days. Before the end of this week, we are going to have registration open for TexMoot. Um, uh, so that's it is it is finally happening. The, uh, the long delayed, and it probably doesn't seem as long to you guys as it has seemed to us, as we have been trying to find the right venue, um, which was surprisingly difficult. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, it, Almarea says it, it, it's uh, it, it would have been all uh, iced out anyway, uh, so we we dodged a bullet there. Yeah, yeah, um, but um, yeah, Fort Thomas. I thought about that. It's almost on Gondorian New Year, but not quite. But 
you know, kind of having it on the Saturday is important, but it'll be close. So anyway, we're going to, we're coming to Austin. I'll be, I'll be down there in Austin at the end of March, March 26th. And then the very week after that, um, we're going to be in Orlando for, uh, for, for, uh, Sunshine Moot. So Sunshine Moot also happening. Um, we have solidified that that's going to be on the 2nd of April, the very weekend after Tex Moot. So we're going to do two moots in a row. Uh, so I'll be in uh, I'll be in in uh, in Austin on the 26th, and I'll be in uh, uh, Orlando on the second. Um, and we're going to be we're going to we're going to we're going to finally moot again after several months hiatus. It's been since the beginning of November when we did uh, Bay Moot uh, out in San Francisco, which was so cool. Um, and uh, looking forward to getting back into moots and uh, meeting folks again. Always such a wonderful uh, a wonderful opportunity. So anyway, I am uh, looking forward to being able to see folks again. The registration for both of those will be up uh, fairly soon. Um, as well as themes and topics. I don't remember the theme of TexMoot. I used to know it, but I've been focused on the venue for so long I've forgotten it. Um, but anyway, it's gonna be it's gonna be cool. So um, I definitely wanted to invite you guys to join me, uh, and you can of course join us physically or you can join us digitally um, and uh, participate either way. So um, one way or another, um, we're gonna. Um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do that. One last thing I wanted to mention, and this actually is kind of a it's a it's a it's a small thing. This is just sort of a personal thing. It's not a signum thing at all. This is a non-signum announcement. Um, but uh, something that I, over the course of the years uh, doing the you know online discussions that we've been doing, a number of people have requested have suggested um, that I should do a Bible study, and I decided I'm going to do that. I'm finally going to actually uh, move ahead and do that. So if you are interested, I know it's not everybody's, uh, 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 you know, uh, whatever. Uh, it's, it's not everybody's thing, um, but I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be hosting a Bible study on uh, Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and like I said, this is, it's not a Signum event. This is just a me personal event, just something I'm doing privately. Um, if you're interested, you're welcome. You can invite other people. It's going to be loose. It's going to be kind of like this in its format. Um, I mean, I think there are going to be a number of people who said they were interested in coming. So, but, you know, but I want to have, you know, open discussion and going through, we're going to start off our, we're going to begin looking at the first epistle of John, um, which I chose because I don't understand it. So you guys can help me and it'll be fun. Um, so, uh, no, we're not going to start from Genesis. We're not going to start from Genesis. But it is going to be, Kurtzimus, almost certainly uh, the same pace. It, no, it's not going to be the same pace. Um, it's going to be a good deal slower, I suspect. Uh, uh, we're going to start with the epistle of First uh, uh, John. And I think that First John will probably take me more than a year, year and a half, something like that. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, it's going to be... <laughs> it's it's going to be fun. So if you would if you would like to again, you know, no no pressure, no judgment. I just wanted to mention that I'm doing it. Um you can go to I made a little uh, a little uh kind of dorky little website just to have a place where I could put links and announcement. There's a Zoom link there. Uh studentsoftheword.org. studentsoftheword.org is the 
my rinky dink little website. Uh, so you can uh, just go there. There's a Zoom link on it. Um, I will be posting there a schedule for when like, I'm not going to be able to do it when I'm away at Moots, for instance. So we're going to be on hiatus at the end of March and the beginning of April as I'm traveling on the weekends. But um, uh, anyway, so um, and yeah, um, JJ, there will be um, there will be um, uh, asynchronous. I'm going to I'm going to record it and I'll post it on YouTube and a podcast feed and stuff so people can follow along asynchronously if they want to. Um, so anyway, that's a thing that's happening that I just wanted to tell you guys about. Um, as I say, it's not affiliated with Signum at all. This is just a separate thing. Um, anyway, there we go. Let's jump back into the text then. Um, Let's start with the pro. Remember, this is pro- this is what prose looks like. Just so that you remember, this is what prose looks like. And um, uh, if you, um, we're gonna start. I don't. Wanna, let's not start all the way back. Um, okay, let's start pretty much all the way back. Um, Frodo says that he'll take Sting right, and Bilbo um, uh, fastens Sting on the glittering belt. Just a plain hoppet you look, said Bilbo, but there is more about you now than appears on the surface. Good luck to you. He turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune. So here's the first time Bilbo seems to be uh, apparently trying to keep himself from crying, right, in this conversation, um, is why he's looking out the window trying to hum a tune, presumably, uh, as we talked about before. Um, And... Frodo makes it worse, <laughs> emotionally speaking, right? Uh, I cannot thank you as I should, Bilbo, for this and for all your past kindnesses, said Frodo. Don't try, said the old hobbit, turning around and slapping him on the back. Ow, he cried. You are too hard now to slap. But there you are. Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses. All I ask in return is, take as much care of yourself as you can, and bring back all the news you can, and any old songs and tales you can come by. I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book if I am spared. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see, for still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Okay. And then after that, I think, yeah, the Conte jumps after that, so that we don't get an immediate continuation of the scene. The poem ends this scene before we move on. Um, okay. Um, the main question that we were sort of not finished with, as I recall last time, was we kind of came to the, to me, shocking conclusion, um, that, uh, but all the while I sit and think of times there were before, um, is a subordinating 
a, a, a subordinate clause, essentially, right? That but all the while is functioning, as we discussed last time, as a subordinating phrase, which subordinates, um, uh, I sit and think of times there were before, to I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. We didn't fully think through, um, we didn't fully think through what that means, what that says, the way in which the kind of context that that places the entire rest of the poem, right? Um, that act of subordination is a huge deal. It's a major shift at the end of the poem. I think we need to explore that a little bit more and then think about that in context of the scene that builds up to it. And we'll go back uh, to that prose. Um, this is a really good question. Um, Silk Westgate was just asking any chance that he freestyled it. Um, really important question. Trifle uh, says, what are the odds Bilbo has written this poem between now and the end of the council when he knows Frodo will be going to Mordor. Well, Trifle, there was plenty of time, right? I mean, months have gone by. Uh, you know, we had that whole passage of time as, you know, November comes in and everything, right? Um, it's, been a, it's been a couple months. Um, at least a couple months. Two and a half months since the Council of Elrond. Um, so, um, Yeah, yeah. I think that he um, he obviously had plenty of time to write it. Is this... Now, we should pause a second and note that there are three... I'm going to go with three. Probably there are more. But there are at least three ways in which a poem can be inserted into a narrative, right? One can be as the recording of a, you know, extemporaneous expression like that we are being asked as readers to believe that the, that the speaker of the verse has extemporaneously invented that poem as we go, right? Okay, okay, four. Did I say three? Four. Another would be the person is reciting. That's the one I, I was skipping in my head, right? We, we got that already with Sam, right? With the Gogalid poem, for instance, right? We saw him um, reciting that from memory. We saw he recited the troll song. He, didn't, he made it up, but he didn't make it up on the spot, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, Frodo at the Prancing Pony. Again, they're all reciting, po and we're, we are told that they are reciting poems. In fact, this is the majority of the category I almost skipped is the majority of the poems we've seen in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? The walking song was one of Bilbo's favorite walking songs. The bath song uh, is a song, the, the drinking song. Um, uh, almost all of those songs are songs that we are told the person who says them knew them already, like had them memorized from earlier and is reciting them now. There is another instance in which we are asked to believe that the speakers, like it's explicitly part of the narrative that the speakers make it up on the spot. Yes, yeah, Dolores Stroke, the poem by Aragorn, Legolas, and Aragorn um, at Boromir's funeral boat. Yes, the narrative asks us to believe that they have made that up on the spot, 
right? Absolutely, it does. And we know because Gimli's comment about not singing about the East Elroy stroke that you mentioned um, uh, is explicitly there. Um, I would also include it's a little bit less explicit. That is, it the claim isn't explicitly made in the text, but it's kind of implied. I think the Gondor Gondor poem that Aragorn says when he sees Gondor from a distance, right? That's another one I would put into this uh, into this case. Um, but those that's two categories. So category number one, recitation. I'm, I'm, I'm moving my categories around. Category number one, the recitation of pre-learned poems by a speaker. Um, the category two, extemporaneous poetry by a speaker. Category I'm going to skip three for a second. Category four is a poem which is explicitly inserted in and detached from the narrative entirely. Like a poem that we know is being inserted after the fact, not spoken spontaneously by any speaker in the text. Um, And here, the classic example of number four is... um, uh, the poem about Theoden riding out from Dunharrow, right? Um, uh, we're told by the narrator that a maker later on, in years to come, wrote this. And so this is being included into that, right? Um, Marhouse, yes, the Snowman epitaph. Um, I would even include the... Um, uh, the Mounds of Munberg, the the funeral elegy after uh, the Battle of Pelennor Field, um, because we're told that a maker in Rohan is like is going to make that song, right? But we're not being asked to understand that. Not only are we not being asked to understand that anyone in the song, in the in the in the story, in the novel, you know, made that up spontaneously, but we're not being even expected to believe. Or that anyone in the story even said it at all, right? It's, we're just given it, right? Um, now, the third category is the interesting and complicated one. And the third category is poems that are put into the mouth of a speaker in the context of the story, but which, for which neither of the first two explanations are explicitly given. We're not being told Like, it's not part of the story that this person is extemporaneously making it up, nor is it part of the story that this person is reciting a pre-learned poem. Again, the Oliphant poem, pre-learned, right? Sam's reciting with his hands behind his back, right? Um, Again, um, so that third category, somebody's saying it, but the story is not asking, it's not making any statement either way. And therefore, sort of, the door is open. It could be one of those two things. It could either be an extemporaneous poem by the speaker in that moment. It could be the speaker reciting a poem or a song that they knew before in some way, but we're just not told it, right? It's just not mentioned because it's not important. Um... But it's also possible that it's in a category like the fourth category, that it's a poem that is written later and inserted in the story at this point because it is fitting. Um, and somebody was mentioning um, somebody was mentioning Amir's 
versus in battle, right? And this is actually one of the ones that uh, uh, comes to mind. Um, not that I think it's obvious that this is necessarily one of those categories, but I remember um, uh, Mike Drought has spoken about this, that, um, you know, it's, it is part of the... It's kind of part of the Germanic, like the, 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 there's a kind of um, suspension of disbelief, as it were, that's sort of part of the Germanic heroic tradition. Like the people reading these poems had been in too many battles to believe that everybody who gives a poetic speech in the middle of a battle actually said that, in fact, at the time, right? Um, you know, that it's, it's, part of the tradition that like when you are telling the tale you capture that moment in that way right so when you're writing the story of what happened at the battle of Pelennor field uh especially say if you are a bard in rohan telling the story you're going to write verses for amir to say not because you're being like journalistically you're you know using journalistic integrity right but because those verses capture that moment fitly, right? Um, like, he might not have actually said it, but that's what happened, right? That captures the moment. Um, and uh, again, that's, um, that's traditional. That's, that's, and I, I, I think that Mike Drought is very right about this. Um, uh, it does seem clearly part of that kind of tradition that I don't think anybody, um, you know, who is reading the poem, uh, you know, who's reading like the Battle of Malden would have expected had they been in attendance at the Battle of Malden to have heard people saying word for word, you know, what was there. Um, that's just not um, not necessarily. Uh, um, um, yeah. Uh, Matt says the poetic speeches in Germanic epic battles are the equivalent of the large speech bubbles in comic books where the hero and villain are holding extended conversations while fighting with one another. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> something like that. Um, it's it is an important part of the narrative and it is true to the narrative. Right. Even if it weren't necessarily true to the speaker. So I do think I do think that that category, which is, that's what I was calling my third category. I do think that that exists in the Lord of the Rings world. Um, I think that it is now the problem I always have is deciding which poems belong there. I always have a problem with that because here's the, here's the other side, right? On the one hand, you could say folks in battle are way too busy to recite epic staves, you know, like, uh, like Amir does. However, at the same time, one, it is not unreasonable, actually, to expect that someone with, er with Amir's education, right, someone who was raised in his culture at that moment might express themselves poetically in that way. Like, that is the kind of thing that might well emerge from someone of his, you know, uh, of his upbringing and his education and his, in that context, like, it actually does happen. Like it could theoretically, you can't, you can't, you can't rule it out. You just can't rule it out. So I'm always a little bit hesitant necessarily 
um, uh, to um, put particular poems into category three. Um, back to this poem then. What category is this poem in? It could be It's not category four. <laughs> we can be sure of that, right? We can be sure of that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, we can be sure of that. And yeah, exact, some of the things that you guys are saying are exactly, um, exactly the arguments in favor of saying they, you know, Amir might have made spontaneous poetry, right? JJ is pointing out how the Rohirrim sang as they slew. Yeah, sang what exactly? Uh, you know, I, like would they would they have known heroic songs that they would have sung as they fought? Yeah, sure they would have, right? And absolutely, in Kurtzimus, it is like that. Kurtzimus talks about New Testament uh, Bible authors who are so immersed in the Old Testament and seem to speak it unconsciously. Yes, I agree. It comes out all over the place. And to be perfectly frank, Kurtzimus, to give an even more contemporaneous example, um, <laughs> like people at Signum University meetings, we don't have meetings that often, but when we do have meetings or discussions or making decisions and stuff, uh, uh, Tolkien quotes, just like Tolkien quotes and vocabulary just pop out all the time because like that's where we live, right? So anyway, like, yeah, like that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, uh, yeah, Kurtzimus was just saying us talking Tolkien. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Right. So somebody who is exactly who is steeped in those kinds of heroic songs, which of which Aemir would have known many, many. Right. But again, it doesn't that by itself doesn't uh, doesn't prove it. Right. Um, it doesn't prove that that happened. Anyway, what I would say as a side note, I don't think. Some people some people seem to respond negatively to the idea of category three who think that it like lessens, uh, in some way, uh, um, yeah, I won't say belittles, but met lessons that like Amir is more epic, right? If he is able to spontaneously recite epic poetry and it makes him lesser. If somebody's ghostwriting his, you know, epic verses after the fact, um, I hear that. On the one hand, I hear that. But on the other hand, remember that that... Think about the assumption that underlies that objection. The assumption that underlies that objection is that what we're reading is some kind of faithful, contemporaneous... Like there's somebody following Aemir around in battle with a stylus and parchment, right? Um, taking dictation of everything that's happening and writing it all down at the time, right? Um, it is true that many parts of the story, and the Battle of Pelennor Field is certainly one of them, um, feel so real and sweep us up into them, and we feel that we are there in the moment that we can assume we're having, that the text is giving us that kind of an immediate experience. But the text not only does not claim to be giving us that experience. The text explicitly says 
That is not the experience that we are being given. Remember that how Tolkien constructed the artificial history of the text is that what we are reading is a modern translation of a late version of a story, a manuscript that is passed down and recopied from Gondor after being taken from and possibly translated from the original copies written by the hobbits in the years following the events, right? That's, um, uh, that's what we're told we're reading, right? Um, the earliest, at the very, the most immediate, right? The very most immediate that we're getting is Frodo writing about this back in Bag End after he gets back to the Shire a year after the events happen. And of course, he wasn't there at the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? There's literally no way that Frodo could know what Amir said exactly during the battle, right? Um, again, the point is um, uh, the, the, the um, right, Trifle says, which as a historian is frankly a fairly straightforward textual history. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, it's totally normal. That's exactly normal. Um, but anyway, like it's, it's um, sure, Mary reported the whole thing to him. Sure, sure. Mary wasn't even there for the whole thing. However, <laughs> I mean, all of Amir's verses, right? Um, how did Amir know? How did Mary know what Amir said when he was standing up, like throwing up his sword and catching it and singing as he caught it, right? When he sees the, the banner on the ships at the Harland? Mary wasn't there. Mary wasn't there. <laughs> Mary, was, Mary was like unconscious somewhere uh, when that happened. So anyway... It, it, like, like I'm, I'm sure they did lots of research, and I'm, sh I, I, you know, maybe Frodo did. But notice how we're already beginning to project modern sensibilities upon this, right? We're beginning. We, it, it, it's like if, if you want to believe, like if you want to believe that what you're reading is exactly what happened, and word for word what everybody said, that what is happening when you're reading this is that you are getting, you're there, right? You are like next thing to an eyewitness to the events of the Battle of Pelennor Field. If that's what you want to convince yourself that you're getting, you're fighting against the text. I'm just saying. You're fighting. That's not what Tolkien's offering you, right? And if you want that, like, it's fine. You can play that game. It's like, it's your imagination, right? I'm just saying um, that is not... Um, the main point that I would make is there are some people who f seem to feel that anything less than that is just like a disappointment, way lesser, right? It makes it all fake, right? And I believe that the point that Tolkien would make, the point that Frodo might make, the point that um, medieval historians would make, footnote, um, is that what you're reading is something different, but not something less. What you are reading is a literary account, right? You are reading a story, a story as written by Frodo, right? With help, right? Um, as we've been discussing, 
some Bilbo, some Sam, uh, some Findigil uh, interventions, very likely. Um, you, you, that's what, that's what we're getting. That's what we're getting. We're getting a narrative. We're getting a story written by an artist, right? Who is telling us what he's telling us for reasons, right? For story reasons. Um, and there, and one of the things, one of the tools that a story writer writing in that way um, uh, is going to do is likely insert poems in a couple different ways, right? Maybe insert poems like the um, uh, From Dumb and Harrow in the Dim Morning poem, right? Explicitly, you know, later on, I heard this song. Somebody, like, he, he could very likely have gotten that um, while he was in Rohan. Heard that in Rohan, right? They, they, they might have already be, been beginning to sing that song. I bet you he could have heard that on the way back from Minas Tirith, right? As they would have heard many songs um, while they were staying there in Meadowseld, um, uh, you know, in and around the wedding of Faramir and Eowyn. So he might have heard that, right? And then he brings that home and he's like, oh man, that song, that song that that later bard wrote about Theoden riding forth from Dunharrow, um, you know, it's chronologically out of order. Like that song wasn't written for, you know, a while after that. But you know what? It's really good, right? It's really good. Um, maybe it wasn't Frodo. Maybe it was Findigil who adds that, right? Who knows? Um, but, um, I. Yeah, yeah. And Trifle, you are absolutely right. Good to have a historian's perspective on this. As Trifle says, as any good entry-level history course will hammer into your head, history, defined as that which actually happened, is something we will never know. We don't have access to what actually happened in the past. All we have is the stories told about it. Yes, exactly. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so... That brings us back to category three. <laughs> now, um, does am I saying? You'll notice though that I did separate category two and category one from category three. That is to say, when the narrative tells us that these people made up that, like we are told, the story insists that Sam recited the troll song, right? The story insists that that happened. Therefore, it would be to believe that like Frodo as author inserted the troll song after the fact and attributed it to Sam would be in a different category, I think. Like, out, for us to respond to that and theorize that that happened would be in a different category than imagining that perhaps Amir didn't actually say those exact words on the Battle of Pelennor Field. That would be in a different category in my head. That's why I separated them into different categories, right? Similarly, when we are told they are making this up on the spot, right? When, when extemporaneousness, extemporaneity, extemporanitude, what's, is there a noun form of extemporaneous? Extemporaneousness is just a disappointment. There needs to be a better noun form. If there isn't one, we need to make a far. But extemporaneity, yeah, that's um, 
extemporaneosity, Matthew, osity is one of my go-tos. I, if if I if I don't know a noun, I either put on osity or etude. Um, uh, those are my two favorite noun endings to when I make up nouns. But extemporaneity, yeah, that that sounds right. That, that's 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 what I was groping for. Okay, extemporaneity. Um, the extemporaneity of the verse is part of the story. So we're given none of that here, right? If we go back to the context, he broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. The story insists that he does sing, right? So I guess we should say that this, the story is telling us it has to be one of the two. Probably. I think so. Um, uh, yeah, um, Matt, I agree. I agree that I think, I don't think that the narrative, it doesn't seem to be claiming extemporaneity. And I agree with you that it is more in Bilbo's character for it to have been a composed poem. Um, I, too, was also trying to think about um, um, uh, other examples, other places where Bilbo has performed um, spontaneously. And I agree. I think we know old fat spider sitting in a spinning in a tree was extemporaneous. Yeah, that's the, the his spider poetry was extemporaneous. Um, made up on the spur of a very awkward moment, as we're told. Um, I don't think that any other Bilbo verse yes, no, we are. Um, his The road goes ever, ever on at the end of The Hobbit. The road goes ever, ever on at the end of The Hobbit. Um, seems to be it's we're not it doesn't say it explicitly but the context strongly suggests to me that that's inspired in that moment um, uh, yeah yeah that was when you were thinking of Matt yeah um, he just they're coming across they're about to come into sight of the hill right and Bilbo stops and just starts spouting that song right um and you can't absolutely rule out the possibility that he, you know, had been making it up as they walked across the Shire. I mean, you know, even from Bree, it's a bit of a walk, right, to, um, uh, uh, to Bag End. So he had plenty of time, even after he'd crossed the boundaries of the Shire, to make up that song in his head, right? Um, and it doesn't explicitly say that he made it up. Again, the spider poetry, it explicitly says he made it up at the spur of the moment. Um, but, um, I, uh, yeah. So I think that, but, but it does like the way that he seems to be stricken in that moment, Gandalf's response. Um, I do take that one to be spontaneous. Uh, and, and what's more, it seems to me, the spontaneity of that poem seems to me potentially like an important thing. And I think that Gandalf notes that as well when Gandalf marvels at Bilbo, you know, 
speaking poetry like that. Um, yes, all we're given is he stopped suddenly and said, exactly, JJ, uh, quoting the text for us, exactly. Um, so, uh, musical, some of the riddles, you're right, some of the riddles too, um, uh, were um, made up, at least one, he made up on the spot. Um, yeah, that's true, that's true. So I guess we have a little bit. I put Roads Go Ever Ever on on a in a special category. Like I, it's it's different. Um now um category 17. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm just saying I I I I guess I'm introducing a subcategory of extemporaneous poetry, aren't I? Um but um <laughs> fine. But it's not a separate category as far as the textual experience is concerned. Um, uh, there I'm subdividing rather the moments and, you know, the, uh, you know, what is the impetus that drives the extemporaneous poetry? Um, of that, there's more than one category. Um, anyway, actually, what I would compare that moment for Bilbo to most closely is Aragorn's Gondor poem, actually. That same kind of, like, I'm looking and seeing something and um, having a poetic moment. Anyway, okay. Um, so, I think I agree with Matt that what Bilbo is likely to turn to in this moment is more likely to be recited than extemporaneous. That in this moment, especially in this moment, right? Um, what do I mean by especially in this moment? What I mean by especially in this moment with Frodo, this particular moment for Bilbo. When we see people in the books speaking contemporaneous verse, they are doing so in response to what is happening. Like it, is, it is a matter of them processing what is happening around them through poetry, right? Bilbo's about to return home, right? Just before he, can, he sees the hill with his eyes, he stops and he works through and expresses what he's thinking and feeling and reflecting about his journey and about himself. And he expresses that in the poem. But it, the poem is all about that moment, right? Not just about himself, but, but about like that moment of right before he gets home again, right? That's what that poem is about. Gondor, um, uh, the Gondor poem, right? Aragorn sees Gondor from a distance and is thinking about going to Gondor and not just traveling through Gondor like he's done before, but like going to Gondor with capital letters, right? Uh, and claiming the kingship. Um, it's a big moment when he sees Gondor again in that, there's going to Gondor and there's going to Gondor, right? As far as he's concerned. So this is a very, um, it's a big deal, right? And it's that moment. And it's, and that's that poem, his Gondor poem is very much about, um, uh, him and Gondor and returning to Gondor, right? I mean, it's it's definitely um, in that moment. Um, um, 
Yes, I agree. Somebody was talking about Sam's poem. Yes, the song that Sam will sing in Kirith Ungol. Yes, um, very much an in-the-moment composition. Right. And importantly related, again, a poetic Sam, the, the character himself processing, um, uh, processing that moment, that time in a poetic way. That's not what we see here. Right. That, I think, is why I'm resistant to the idea that Bilbo's poem is a spontaneous composition, um, because in this moment, um, saying good luck to Frodo, right? Um, there's more about you now than appears on the surface. Good luck to you. And he's fighting back tears. Right. And then... Um, I should like to write the second book if I'm spared. Um, will we ever see Frodo again? Right? Think, you know, um, Frodo's thanks for this and all his past kindness. All of these things. Bilbo's heart is full in this moment, right? And I do not think that if he were to have a spontaneous poetic moment here, if he were to process this moment, this experience, the, these thoughts, poetically, it would be, I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been. Like, I, don't, I, that's, I don't think that's how this would go, right? I don't think that at all. Um, but um, I do like the idea. I do like the kind of compromise reading that several of you were suggesting, and I was thinking in that direction too. What if the first five stanzas were a precomposed poem? Right? Something that he had been, uh, that he'd been writing already. Right? During his time at Rivendell. Sometime in the last 17 years, he wrote those first five stanzas. And it's stanza six that spontaneous, that subordination. Um, right, Blood was just saying exactly that same thing. The main action of the poem of sitting beside the fire and thinking is something he's been doing for a while. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, but what if that last stanza was one that he either is adding or altering in these immediate circumstances? Um, it's possible. Can the poem end after the fifth stanza? No, I don't think it would necessarily. Um, that is, I don't think that he was, you know, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Like, I, no, I don't see him packaging it that way. Um, but A, maybe it was an unfinished poem. Maybe it was a poem that he didn't know how to finish and he's like, now I know how to finish it. Maybe it was a poem that had a different ending and he was like, now I'm going to uh, change the ending, right? Um, oh yeah, now I, I want to take this in a different direction. Both of those seem to me possible. Um, but the problem is, even if we decide, and I think it very likely, um, I think it very likely that the last stanza is directly inspired by Frodo's departure. 
I'm not, I think I'm less than 100% convinced that even the last stanza is spontaneous because I do think, I do know, this is something he's been thinking about for a couple months. He's had, he's been sitting beside the fire and thinking even over the last couple months, right? Um, he could have composed this poem from scratch in November, right? Um, with the ending as he's thinking about Frodo departing and hopefully coming back. Um, so I guess even with that last stanza, it doesn't, st I don't find that reading gripping. Like I don't find it, uh, it doesn't strike me as being a sort of, I don't know, sort of necessary, but I think it's, I think it's fine. I think it can work. Um, Nancy says, what, you're saying that Bilbo rewrote the poem? How Tolkienian? Yeah, except, Nancy, uh, if Tolkien had been doing if Tolkien had been in Bilbo's place, he would have not just added a stanza, he would have started at the beginning and redone the whole thing. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, see, Arden Crane, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure he has been waiting for returning feet. Arriving feet, perhaps, but not returning feet, you see. Um, he might have wished that Frodo would come eventually, would make it to Rivendell and visit him. Um, but would he have characterized those as returning feet at that point? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he would have done. I'm not sure that anybody that he would have expected, even Frodo, if anyone else, if anyone had come to Rivendell to see him, um, if there had been visiting feet, right, at any point in the last 17 years, before the last couple months, um, if um, uh, if he would um, have uh, characterized those as returning feet, right? But once he knows Frodo's going uh, on the quest for the ring, now returning feet is doubly important, right? Doubly because if it's Frodo's feet, they're going to be returning feet, but because that they should return is a matter of grave doubt as far as Amdir is concerned and um, is um, uh, you know certainly very much to be wished for uh, at this at this point um, yeah now okay Bjorning I like that reading Bjorning is arguing that this poem if, if I Bjorning we'll see if I'm characterizing your argument correctly Bjorning is arguing that the poem here that Bilbo, the, the total poem that he gives, including the returning feet, um, does in fact fit this occasion, this particular as a as a as a processing of this moment, rather particularly because, as he says, he never actually gave up on the desire for adventure until recently. Um, uh, Bjorning, they're recalling the discussion that we had been having back in the days when we used to discuss prose, um, that one of the things that we can see happening in this moment of the giving of Sting and the giving of the Mithril shirt uh, to Frodo is Bilbo surrendering any idea of adventuring himself, which I was arguing I think is important, especially in the context of Bilbo giving up the ring again, right? Um, whenever Bilbo doesn't try to take the ring from Frodo, <laughs> I mean, like, 
to put it really uh, horribly, but relevantly, as I think you'll see, every day that Bilbo spends not throttling Frodo and taking the ring back is a day of triumph for Bilbo. He is still... We know he's still under the power of the ring. Gollum is still under the power of the ring. Years later, decades later after he's lost it, right? We know that Bilbo is still under the power of the ring, and yet he's giving it up. It's like, again, every day, every day that goes by that Bilbo doesn't have the ring and is a day that he's successfully given it up again, right? Um, so I think that's very much involved in his giving up of his mithril uh, coat and his sword. Um, and um, yes, JJ, exactly. Bilbo is like a recovered alcoholic who still doesn't drink for fear of relapsing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, every day he doesn't go to the bar is a victory. Yes. Yes. It's not the default. Um, it's always a victory. Yes. Yes. And to be celebrated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, so um, I... I that this is me trying, Bjorning, trying to give your argument uh, uh, sort of full scope here. Um, in that sense, Bilbo, one way, of course, that you can characterize this song is a retirement song, right? Um, if Even if it's not a song about death, which it kind of is in some ways, but not really. It's not a song preoccupied with death. Um, it's a song around death, right? But it's not, a, it's not, death isn't the subject of it. Um, the pretext for it, in a sense, right? But, uh, but not its subject matter. Anyway, um, retirement poem, as I said. Um, and Bjorning is arguing that he only, he only just decided to retire. Like, he is only enacting his retirement this day, this morning, right? Christmas Day, um, as Frodo is about to set out, um, he gives him Sting and the Mithril Coat, thereby sealing the fact he's, there's no way he's going to, he can't possibly go adventuring. Dangerous enough, right? He's likely, he's already sufficiently likely to be carved up into mincemeat. Uh, he's... Uh, um, you know, certainly stands no chance if he goes about tottering about in the wild, even without his mithril coat and his in his sword. Um, but um, yeah, so I do see that Bjorning. But here would be my uh, my counter argument. My counter argument would be. This has been growing in his mind for the last two months. Um, as Arnaz says, he gave his notice a couple months ago, and today he returned to stationery and received his gold watch. I guess except where you give jewelry in Bilbo's case, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Gandalf does tell him bluntly at the council that his role is over except perhaps as a recorder trifle. You're right. You're right. Um, and that's kind of what I'm thinking, too. Do I think this moment... A significant one, of course I think it's significant that he's giving away his stuff now. I think that it is Bilbo's retirement is real, is official in this way. I mean, to make the obvious parallel, chapter one, his party, right? Um, 
That's what this whole party business was about, he says, right? Uh, to give away lots of presents and hopefully make it easy to give it away, right? It hasn't made it any easier in the end. Um, he had made up his mind. He says earlier in the chapter to Gandalf, I've made up my mind and, I, and, I, and, 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 and I'm not changing it. His mind was set on giving up the ring. Your whole planned mind, says Gandalf, right? Um, to him back in chapter one, prior to the party. But there's planning it and then there's actually doing it, right? This is the day. So I would agree that this is the day that he's actually doing it, right? That he is make that he is enacting the retirement, the full retirement that I think he has been contemplating and that he has been thinking through. I would go so far as to say I think it very unlikely that he wrote even the first five stanzas of this poem any time before the last two months. Um, I think there's enough evidence to suggest, although he obviously was in retirement at Rivendell, um, even though he's able to toss off remarks like my last journey when he talks about going uh, his trip to the Lonely Mountain, um, I think that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he's not fully reconciled to that. Um, that he's not really yet in a place where what he's primarily doing is sitting beside the fire and thinking of all the things that he's thinking about in this poem. But after the council, after he realizes his role in the story is over, as you guys were saying, um, uh, that he's um, uh, that he is It's time for him to stop journeying. Again, it's time to give the ring up again in a different way. Not go with it. Not go after it. Let it go. Let Frodo go with it. Realizing that Frodo might not come back. Um, I mean, think of the way you know how the ring acts. We've seen it by this point. How does the ring act? On your mind, right? How does the ring tempt you? The ring tempts you by uh, uh, rationalizations, right? As Gandalf says, the desire to do good. Um, how many times has the thought gone through Bilbo's mind since the council? Um, I know you agreed and everybody agreed that it was best that Frodo go. But if you steal the ring from Frodo and take it off, take it away yourself, run off yourself away from everybody else. Um, then you'll be saving Frodo's life, right? You'll be sacrificing yourself to save Frodo's life. Um, I know Gandalf said that you shouldn't do it and that the ring had passed on and whatever, but what, what, but what does Gandalf know? Gandalf doesn't, right? I mean, doesn't this sound exactly like all of the ring temptations we've seen to Frodo, even to the rationalization about what Gandalf said, right? Um, uh, that's... I mean, I have to imagine that that something very like that sequence of thoughts has gone through Bilbo's head probably far more often than once over the course of the previous two months, right? So, anyway, I think he's been processing this. Jane, yeah, he's been processing this. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. 
trifle again, or at least emotions with rationalizations provided by oneself to justify the emotion. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Um, so I do think this poem was certainly written within the last two months and that it reflects the mind and expresses the thoughts of a Bilbo who is reconciling himself to a real retirement. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it is the final surrender, Kurtzimus. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so. This really, f thinking about that stuff, really fits well with some of the observations we were making, especially about stanzas four and five. Um, especially four. The, that I have never seen, that tense thing. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Um, and then, of course, thinking in context about how we shift back in stanza five to people who will see a world that I shall never know, right? Um, we were talking about the possibility of kind of adding an implied yet, right, to line two of stanza four, right, that I have never seen yet. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Um, that is a sort of a statement of um, a statement of hope. Um, but the statement is not for his. The hope is not for his own life, right? The statement of hope is not about his own personal future or the things that he's going to do, right? It's fully reconciled. Um, what happens in that um, last? stanza then? What does that subordination accomplish? Well, let's go back a second. Remember the picture that the poem has been building, right? Those first two stanzas, the summers and the autumns, both happening in the past, both witnessed, him tangentially involved, all those things that we saw, right? experiences that he had, but they weren't about him, right? He's reflecting back on these seasons, beautiful seasons, but of course, with summer and fall, remember the, the, uh, the shift from butterflies to gossamer, right? From, uh, uh, from things living to things dying. Um, he has seen all of these things, right? He's seen, he's seen flowers and he's seen uh, spider webs, right? He's seen spiders. Um, anyway, so uh, so we see him reflecting on those things, past things that he has experienced, a, a, a wide range of things that he's experienced. Stanza three, we have him thinking about how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. What's going, it seems like more of an open question. We don't know. He doesn't say in that stanza anything about how the world will be, right? We kind of have to figure, like, he's, it's an open, it's an open question, right? He's thinking about the past, 
the past, the world that he has seen in the past. In stanzas one and two, stanza three, he's thinking about the unknown future, but then stanza four, he is asserting, that's that, that Estelle statement, Bjorning, that we were seeing in stanza four, right? On the one hand, he doesn't know how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall never see, but this I do know. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green, right? Spring shall come again, and it will be beautiful and it will be different every, every time spring does come again. And it's true that I have never seen these springs, right? Um, but they certainly shall be. And then stanza five, sitting behind the fire, beside the fire, not behind the fire, sitting beside the fire and thinking for the third time, right, of people. Now we get the people in the, in the, in the frame, right? People long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know, whether it's people who will come after whom he will never meet, or whether it's the people who are currently there with him in the world, but who are going to get to see a world that he will never know. Right. Um, uh, but all the while, so we've got his, his stanzas one through four in a sense are about him and the world, right? the world that was and has been, that he has seen and witnessed and experienced, wondering about the what is to come in the world, asserting what is definitely going to come in the world, right? I don't know how the world will be, but I do know that spring is going to keep on coming, right? Um, I may never see that spring, as he says in stanza three, but that spring shall be, nevertheless, right? And also... Um, uh, the, um, but then it stands a five bringing in the people, right? In the same pattern, people long ago and the people moving forward. Then we get the but. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before. All this time I've been reflecting and thinking backward. I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. That's there is a sense in which, given the subordination, right? If we read those first two lines as subordinating, which again, that blew my mind and continues to, and as I'm still trying to sort of process that here. What that means is that there is a sense in which those last two lines are the, you know, when, you, um, when you're looking at a long, complicated sentence and you want to find out like, what is this sentence about? What do you do? You look for the independent clause and you look for the subject and verb, right? Um, and everything else, all the subordinating ideas are just giving you further information and, and like background, right? But the independent clause, that's what this sentence is about, right? Those last two lines are like the independent clause of the entire poem, right? Like, what is this poem? What, what happens in this poem? What is this poem about at the end of the day? listening for returning feet and voices at the door. That's, um, that's what it's all about. And it, because it's be, all been subordinated. All of that sitting beside the fire and thinking. All the while I sit and think of times there were before. All that time that I have spent doing these reflections and contemplations. Reflections backward, contemplations forward, about people, the world, my life and experiences, 
But, remember the but at the beginning of that last stanza, but while all that's happening, I'm listening for it in the present tense. Because, of course, we should notice the tenses, right? I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Present tense. That's what I'm now doing, right? That's what now is about. The future, I'm not going to be here forever, right? The future is I don't know how the world will be. I know about the springs, right? Um, but there will be a world that I shall never know. And there's the past and times that were before. But this is what I'm doing. Um, and notice it's also... There's a kind of... So there is a subordination of, of self, right? You are more important than my adventures, my career, right? Um, but even then my reflections. There is a sense in which those first two lines of that last stanza, again, if they're subordinating in this way, there's a sense in which those first two lines um, are... There's a sense in which those first two lines are... Uh, I don't, how do I want to say it? Um, I don't want to say they're marginalizing or minimizing or uh, like but they are kind of shoving the whole rest of the poem into a corner or off to the side, right? Um, at the end of the day, none of that stuff matters. My memories of my summers and falls, uh, my contemplations about the springs, at the end of the day, the present tense is listening for returning feet and voices at the door. That's what matters. Um, notice, of course... How, however, what he's doing is not just talking about something completely different, right? Um, where did he end stanza five? People who will see a world that I shall never know. He's sitting and thinking about the people who will outlive him, right? Some of whose returning feet are presumably the feet in question in stanza six, right? Um, so he does kind of transition into this, this um, thought about people for the future, right? Um, and uh, um, yeah, at least he hopes so, Aranas. Exactly. At least he hopes so. Um, and Aranas, do you notice the supreme irony here, right? Bilbo's fear or dread would be lest he outlive Frodo if Frodo dies on this quest which he could easily do right um, matching the old took wouldn't do much good in that case right if that happened um, but um, but he imagines hopes that Frodo will be in that category of people who will see a world that I shall never know. But he won't. The irony is neither of those things is going to happen. Right? He will neither outlive Frodo nor will Frodo see a world that he shall never know. 
right? If you think about it, um, Bilbo and Frodo, in the end, are going to leave the world together. Sam will. Sam's returning feet. Uh, 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 yes, there are a couple sets of returning feet, right, who shall see a world, uh, who will see a world that he shall never know. Um, but, um, yes. Um, but Bjorning, I don't think I disagree with that point. I don't, I, let me say it more strongly. I agree with you. I do agree that I listen for returning feet and voices at the door is not a doubtful wish. I do not think. I agree with you. I do not believe that he is expressing a desperate, you know, fantasy of Frodo's return. Um, hoping against hope that Frodo will return while all the while in his heart uh, 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 dreading and fearing that he will not. Um, I agree that all the while I sit and think of times there were before, while all this is happening, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Um, he's not just wishing for returning feet. Yes, it's not just hope, it's expectation. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, exactly what I think as well. Yes, he is expecting. He doesn't know when they will come, so that's why you have to listen for them, because you never know. Right? Um, but he is expecting the returning feet and voices at the door. Um, and that seems to me the important context if we go back to why he does this in the first place. Um, that is why he sings this song. He breaks off and turns to the window again, singing softly. When? When does he do that? What inspires him to do that? I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book if I am spared. If we just take that last sentence, there are two concepts in that last sentence which are connected to the poem, right? One is if I am spared. That is the prospect of his own personal death is mentioned there, right? If I'm spared means if I live long enough to write it. Um, and of course, certainly he is contemplating the fact that he's not going to be around forever, right? Um, but of course, the other concept raised in that sentence is I should like to write the second book, which involves two separate things things itself, right? We got subcategories again, right? Um, one is I should like to write the second book. There will be a second book, right? Books ought to have good endings, right? Um, uh, so there will be a second book. The, the only occasion on which Bilbo is going to be writing a second book is if the book has a good ending, right? Um, uh such as it might be, and they all settled down and lived happily ever after. Um, but of course, it also... Can, so his writing it, and the second book existing, Frodo's successful return, that the returning feet and voices at the door 
shall arrive is involved in that statement of I should like to write the second book. I would add also, potentially, um, Bilbo's own expressed reconciliation to the role that Gandalf has assigned him. Remember when Gandalf says the ring is passed on, right? Um, and that his his role in the story is over, except perhaps as a recorder, right? So part and parcel of his official, official retirement, right? Handing down his sword and his mithril coat and not a minute too soon. Um, he could have handed those down yesterday, last week, a month before, right? He's had plenty of time, but he hasn't done it until the morning of the departure, right? Um, anyway, uh, his, you know, taking that... Now, him taking on the role of recorder, he's never been reluctant for that. And he was talking about the passage I've been quoting about the good ending of the book, right, is when he was talking about that already with Frodo. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Aranas, we know that uh, Bilbo is very aware of the Valar and Eru. Remember that um, quite reverent line that Bilbo delivers at the end of uh, uh, many meetings, right? When uh, Sam is shows up to... Uh, uh, hustle Frodo off to bed, presumably on Gandalf's orders, and um, uh, Bilbo says that he's going to take a walk outside and uh, look on the stars of Elbereth. Um, we know he thinks that way, right? Um, absolutely. But, um, okay. And of course, the Arendel poem, for sure. Yeah. Um, by Elbereth herself was set. Okay, so he breaks off and turns to the window again, singing softly. What happened there? Um, he turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune we got before, right? That seems to me simply, I'm trying not to lose it here, right? I'm tr I'm trying to keep my English stiff stiff upper, stiff upper lip here. I'm um, I I don't want to break down and blubber like a like a fool in front of Frodo, uh, is what I hear. In he turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. It seems different. It's similar, right? He's looking out the window, breaking off again, interrupting himself again, turning out, turning to the wind, same window again, right? And singing instead of humming. Um, but I do think that it's, um, uh, I do think that it's significantly different. Is he good? He's not trying this. He was trying to hum a tune before and he quite successfully sings a song. Um, and I, there, therein, I think, lies the primary difference, right? His humming, his attempted humming, his attempted humming, right, um, uh, was uh, you know, I, a failed attempt to, uh, you know, do a thing, accomplish something. Um, but he he successfully sings. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. 
Um, I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book if I am spared. When he turns to the window and tries to hum a tune, he doesn't want to say. There are things that want to come out. Some of them are words, some of them are tears, and he stops them. Right? He, he heads them off, both of them, the words and the tears, by trying to hum a tune instead. Right? Then you'll notice that Frodo starts saying some words, and he stops those words too. Don't try. Don't try. Um, stop talking now or we're both going to end up crying, and then where will we be? Right? Seems to be one of the things that underlies don't try. Right? Um, but when he breaks off the second time, it is, I don't think, him trying to stop the words and trying to stop the tears. I think it is him fully expressing. It is either the moment when he does crystallize what he wants to say to Frodo in poetry, or, and I think more likely, his... I think he's been thinking about this poem. I think he's been composing this poem and reflecting on this for some time. Um, possibly with stanza six. Maybe stanza six is part of the extemporaneous expression. I'm willing to consider that. But um, I don't think that he had, like, scripted this, that he had prepared this poem for this more. Like, well, Frodo, as we're saying goodbye, I would like to recite this poem that I've made, like, it, that's not what's happening here. Um, but I think that he is realizing in this moment that the best way he can... He does want to convey... He does, he's not trying to stop the words, as he said. He wants to convey to Frodo what he's thinking, what he's feeling, what it means to him, what this moment of departure means to him, um, uh, what Frodo's role in his life has meant and will mean, you know, um, all those things he wants to convey to Frodo, his thoughts and hopes and expectations concerning Frodo's quest. Um, but the best way that he can say it is in his, uh, um, is in this poem. And again, whether conceivably he makes it up in this moment, or I think more likely in this moment sort of realizes that um, uh, sort of realizes that he um, is um, that this poem that he's been making up is the best way I think it's more likely that he's been writing this poem but he didn't really know why like he's been thinking these thoughts and it's in the, like the I think that this is a moment of inspiration but I think the moment of inspiration isn't here in the poem itself, I think it's here, the moment before the poem, when in the moment before the poem, he realizes that's what this poem is about. That's why, I, like, I've been working on this poem, and this turns out to be the occasion for this poem, um, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, yes, he's looking for a few appropriate words, and these turn out to be the appropriate words, Matt. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, right. Jay Knight says you learn poetry so that you can have it when you need it. Yes, exactly. And in this case, I think that Bilbo writes poetry so that he can have it when he needs it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that feels to me... I don't think that the other readings are impossible, but that's, of course, often the case. I don't think that the the reading that Bilbo is making this up on the spur of the moment, I don't think that's impossible. I don't think there's anything in the, po- in the poem itself or in the context around it that precludes that. But that doesn't... To me, that doesn't feel most right. And at the end of the day, that's kind of how I judge these things. Um, it's not... You kind of put the different readings forward, right? You think it through in the different ways. And then the thing that makes it work best, you know, the thing that fits best, the thing that feels most right. And this, that, this poem about sitting by the fire and reflecting would have been composed in moments of reflection leading up to this feels right. Um, that it emerges now, and that there is spontaneity uh, and spontaneous appropriateness and even a spontaneous expression of the moment in this poem, but it not be one that he made up on the spur of the moment. That that feels, that feels most right, that he... Um, there's a different sense. He didn't make it up in this moment, but there is a different sense in which this is the spontaneous poem, right? That is inspired by this moment. Um, uh, it was inspired by this moment, but he didn't realize it yet when he wrote it. If you see what I mean. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, um, uh, Ace on YouTube, I think I agree with you that, um, uh, I think I agree with you that he he wants to um, uh, one of the things that he is doing I, I do think that it's important that, that the end w- that we hear the, 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 the confidence in that last stanza because he is one thing that he is doing is showing resolution to Frodo um, his last message to Frodo is a message of hope um, and that seems to fit well with what we've seen from Bilbo towards Frodo during and ever since the council. Um, and yes, um, Bjorning, you're absolutely right that um, uh, this is the last thing we read before the Fellowship's departure. Um, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Those last two lines... Um, that's the end of the stay in Rivendell. I mean, they're technically still there, 
it was a cold gray day near the end of December at the beginning of the next paragraph, right? Um, when we get the east wind and we get the description. And, and of course, we're going to have a conversation, which is going to take us a while to talk about. Um, we're still technically in Rivendell here, but the stay is over. This is the departure now, right? This is this is day one of the journey now. Um, you know, this is, the journey has begun as they're standing out in the cold east wind um, near the end of December now. This is the end. Listening for returning feet and voices at the door is the end of the stay in Rivendell. Um, yeah, yeah. So exactly, Drowsnake, we've technically now done four slides today. I'm just saying. Like, this, we covered... So you could either say that we covered four slides today, or you could say that we covered nothing at all because we just talked about stuff we've already talked about all day long. So it's up to you, you know, as to uh, what, we've, uh, what we've done. But we shall... Next time... Next week, we shall return and we shall begin the process of setting out from Rivendell. So whether you count our uh, our time in Rivendell as a group as officially done as of now, which I think would be perfectly fair, um, or whether you still want to count the conversation that they're going to have before they set out in the journey, um, uh, then... Um, uh, then, uh, you know, it'll d determine how we count exactly how long we've been in Rivendell. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we've been in Rivendell less long than Bilbo, so I think it was a short stay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blod likes the idea of bragging that we're now covering zero words per, per, per lesson. Oh, yes. Uh-oh. Uh, so... Uh, 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 evil Dr. Cannon, we finally reached the asymptote that we always feared would happen, right? When uh, forward progress entirely ceases <laughs> and the, uh, the, 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 the projected ending date of our discussion extends to infinity. Um, but um, anyway, okay. We're coming up on three, three years in Rivendell, right? We, Frodo woke up on uh, March 12th of uh, 2019. Yeah, there we go. There we go. If we count the, the, the conversation, we might make it. We might make it. Uh, we'll see. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Very good. Um, thank you guys uh, for joining me today. Uh, this has been really good. I, I'm, this is uh, some of the, the best seven weeks I've ever spent discussing a poem uh, before. So um, uh, thanks. Astro Gypsy, yeah, we've been in Rivendell way longer than Frodo, which seems unfair. Anyway, back to prose next week and setting off on the journey. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, field trip time. We're going to head back to Mirabelle here. Um, but, um, yeah, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And for those of you who aren't going to, who can't stick around for a field trip, we will um, see you guys next week. Good evening, Gloria. How are you? How are you today? Good. Good. All right. Um, so we are headed to Mirabelle. Back to our, um, uh, back to our our lovely feasting hall on the top of the hill. Good for wine tastings, um, wedding receptions, as we were noting. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Insignias. All right. Okay, so t 
today my goal in our field trip is I'm going to try to do what I've never done before and that is get some kind of a handle on the layout of this town. By the way, I love the effect of the shadows that the the that detail work in the domed ceiling casts on the floor. I mean, they they look like it looks like the floor is covered with vines and yet no tripping hazard so you can still dance, right? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I think that's kind of cool. Um, because I was just actually stepping back and being like, ooh, what's this pattern on the floor? And then I'm like, oh, wait, it's just a shadow from the roof. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Anyway, I guess okay. That's where you stand if you don't want to get sunburned. Right. Yeah, exactly. There will be, there'll be an except at, like, the highest of high noons. But even now, the sun's pretty high up in the sky, and there's still plenty of shadow. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, you can stand over here. Do you think elves burned? I kind of don't think they did. Lift a couple of linea without the sun. Yeah, I mean, you'd think they'd, you know, yeah. I, I, I think they, 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 I think they go lobster red in the sun, but that's. Ouch, sorry. Some sort of elf magic. Sorry, Drowsnake says Amrod does. Oh, my God. Goodness. Oh, that is. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah, too <laughs> soon. Too soon. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that was a sick burn. Uh, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Okay. SPF 9000 for that. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's head. So from here, not that this is like. This, I mean, it's where the milestone is, but that doesn't mean that this was the center of Mirabelle that was. But okay, but this seems to be the highest point here. Any, well, no, there was the lookout spot up the hill, but that seems to yeah. be a lookout spot. This place was clearly chosen for the views, not defenses, because there's nothing defensible about any of this apart from the mere height on top of the uh, hill. Yeah, even that without the handrails, how, how great is it really? <laughs> right. Okay, so here... We now have, we're dividing into two ways down the hill. This goes down towards a whole lot of nothing that direction. And this go now, but you know, ruins, there could have been more. And so this immediately comes down into this uh, spot. So yeah. here we have a little dome and a big dome. And Ooh, tile. two little domes, right? Okay. Ooh. Now we've seen this before. Haven't we? So I recognize these motifs. It's like we see the repetition of like those grape cluster motifs that we saw upstairs. It looks like a stag's head with antlers coming out of it and like pop. Kind of leafy though, too. I see you're saying like stag head at the bottom with it. Okay, right. I think it's probably leaves. Yeah, I suppose it could be leaves. 
Hmm. Those definitely look like hops clusters, though. They could be. They could be. Um, well, I've never really thought of the, the Noldor as particularly hoppy, you know, like like making beer. Um, well, it wasn't used perhaps, for beer until all manner of everything else had been... Right. Um... Okay, so that was probably not a slide coming off the top of that gazebo, even though it looks like it. Yeah. That was probably, after what's broken off there, it probably became a graceful ramp or spiral stairs or something like that, right? Yeah, similar to this guy over here. It probably is not, in fact, like the beginning of like a little miniature alpine slide that led off down the hill no probably not reminds me of one of those chuck e cheese playgrounds though or mcdonald's or whatever oh there's more on the underside of this uh little gazebo here you're right yeah the floor panel Mm -hmm. right not exactly the same design but similar very similar Mm -hmm. the rift did we see something like this in the rift I've never been yes. in the Rift. We have. did in the Rift, didn't we? Uh, yeah, no, we, we went to the Rift at the end of our at the end of our um hmm. Angmar walkabout. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, in the rift. That's where we saw it. But that oh. was newer. Look at this floor work here. Yeah. Yeah, it does not look like the grape clusters up on the hill. It looks like a different kind of plant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, these look like grapes over here. Wait, which ones? Uh, the ones uh, over here on the rotunda. Yes, these are the ones that are like the ones upstairs. Yes. Yeah. So those are yes. just, so these are something else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you can see the differences. You've got the the gold, much more. And this looks even leafier. Maybe it's just because of the way the gold pops out that makes it look leafier um, mm-hmm. than the brown over here, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's got green inline instead of blue uh, on the on the inside of the doorways. We usually see that blue marble. This one's green, and it's got a right floral motif. Yeah. Yeah, you could tell they pulled out all the stops. They were going to impress the dwarves at all costs. This is head and shoulders above the architecture and the other places around here. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's The decorations are certainly much more elaborate here. They've been than... attacked by bored Noldren. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's... 
can't really see it either place. The gold on the top of the domes over here. It's that um, sort of yeah. chased metal look that looks like a little bit like wood grain, isn't it? Looks, kind of like uh, we saw to in me, it looks like gold leaf that's peeling off at the edges. Right. Yeah. Well, that's certainly at the bottom. Yeah. I'm looking. I'm thinking of like the swirly lines, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The metal plated stone that looks like wood is, I think, just what we're seeing there, and that's where the plating is coming off. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Metal plated stone that looks vaguely like wood. And this has, so this is like that little ramp that leads up to the top. Oh, there's gold all in the inside of this dome, too. All in the inside? Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, inside and out with the gold plating. Yeah. Do you think it was like leaf that they applied by hand, or they use electroplating, or whatever? Yeah, I think they must have done. I don't know. I don't know the Noldoran techniques. Probably some magic and Atari kind of thing. Possibly. Possibly. Um, so, okay. So it's very fancy, which is what we would think. What was this? If the up at the hall was some kind of feast hall or something, I'm kind of, I'm trying to, I like to run down the road and then come back. Okay, so here I am strolling in this direction, right? We're strolling in this direction, and hang on, let's go further. Where are we coming from? We're going down the hill, and it's a gently sloping hill, and there's nothing else here, and there didn't used to be anything else here other than a road. Yeah. Right? No evidence of ruins or anything else, so this is just a road. We're mm -hmm. just coming, we're coming, so we're out of town. Wherever town was, we're out of it now. Yeah, right? yeah. Coming up from like Lorien or right or from Moria the river or, or yeah exactly we got some over there across the river but that's not our business yet so we're coming up from the river and we got our road on our road splits so having walked up from the river which is crossing so we're this is the river well it's not exactly the way down to Enidwyth if I'm looking well sort of. Anyway, it's to the south. So we're we're we cross the river and we come up and we take a left at the fork in the road. So mm -hmm. now having taken a left at the fork in the road, we come up over the shoulder of this hill. Where are we going? Having crossed the river. It's one of the closest things to the river. And up the gentle slope and around the corner we find this lovely what? Dining. <laughs> um, the party spot is up the hill. So if we keep going to maybe a special function or whatever, mm -hmm. for a special occasion, we'd go upstairs all the way to the hall, right? Yes. Is so this, this might maybe... be the visitor center. <laughs> Right, something like that, because this is, I mean, we can go a couple ways, right? Look, we can go down as yeah. well as up. So, you know, this could be on the way to other places from the river. Though from the river, you could have gone the other way and gone around the hill. No point in going up and around and down back down again. So it's not exactly a prime spot for a welcome 
area. It's not a welcome area in the same way welcome area slash customs hall that we saw like right outside of Moria, right? No. Just might be a place to just cool your heels for a while before going up all those stairs. Yeah. Um, no, I agree, JJ, that elves would probably not be focused on the most efficient path of travel. I, I agree. I agree. Um, I could see that this could be... It's clearly a multi-purpose area. The multiple little structures suggest that it was a multi-purpose area. Right? Unlike the place on top of the hill, which is just a hall. Right, one single singular hall. Mm-hmm. Here, we have um, two different, three different. Well, not different. I think that the wrecked gazebo over here, the wrecked dome, yeah, with a nice shiny floor, was the same as this one. But someone is mentioning Market Square, and this does remind me of like the market that you have. Sure. In, yeah, yeah like the, um, the, uh, the the Nolderan Farmers Market. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. You mean like the well? There's the Market Square area in Rivendell that we looked at, of course. Yes, there's that. But um, the one in um, like uh, Duiland, all of the. All of the vendors were on these little sort of under these little gazebos. True. Right. Right. Okay. Oh, so, right. Yeah. 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 I'm remembering that now. Up in Arid. Up in Arid Lowen. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So if this, but it's not. I think only just like things to eat or things to buy, like we saw and were considering in Gwingris, for instance, um, there would be other possibilities. Like, we know that um, the elvish appetite for poetry and tales, they like them better than food and drink or more, right? Um, So if you're going to build a real elvish rest area, there would be like a a fast poetry stand, right? Like, you don't just have, like, if you're building an elvish rest area, you don't just have, you know, a Starbucks and a Roy Rogers, right? You also have, like, the place where people are, like, telling stories and uh, uh, reciting poetry, right? Stanzas, get your stanzas. <laughs> exactly, right. Stanzas to go. Sonnets for the road. Here you go. Um, Wordsmith, uh, working hourly. See, here's what I'm. Here's one of the things that I'm looking at with this dome. This one is the one that's interesting me most. The one that is totally not a slide, even though I kind of want it to be. Um, <laughs> but it isn't a slide. And but the important thing is, look how different it is from the other two. Right, the yeah. other two were these golden domes. <clears throat> oh, look with the fake fire on top, the fake golden f- torch flame thing, up there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so um, we've uh, but but you know you've got the you've got the base down here at the ground and the big path leading up to the base and the squatty the short columns 
and the the little it's a little one story affair, right? This one is yeah. not just taller, it's totally different in that down here like yeah, there's a floor down here, but look there's not even this is a this is a there's not even stairs. Like the ground floor is like decorative here. You're not even supposed to be down there, right? Where oh, yeah. the place to be is the top floor. Right? Notice how you've got this whole f- extra column uh, holding it up, right? Yeah. It's the upper story. That's where the action is here, right? It's like a bandstand. Or something. Yeah, exactly. And we saw we saw something like this in Gwingris as well, where we had the mm-hmm. ramp leading up, to, like what looked like a, a nice place for oratory or for, you know, telling a story to people sitting on the lawn, um, you know, and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, so, um... <clears throat> Right. Be good for Jade. the domes. Good acoustic. Have good acoustics under a dome. Yeah, yeah. So you can you go up and you uh, like either somebody can stand there at the front, right, <clears throat> and speak to everybody out here, and then maybe the other domes were somewhere where you would where would be like a little bit more private. Like I would bet you the Nolaren made these. I you know the, the Nolaren made these. I bet like the acoustics inside here were pretty good, right? Probably. So you could like come into here and have like quiet conversation you could have well, like you know wouldn't quiet conversation wouldn't be much because a dome amplifies whisper standing right. well no that's what i mean like conversation where you don't have to shout is what i mean oh yeah yeah if you're doing a nine hour recitation or something you'd save your voice for sure yeah exactly so you could you know come in here yeah, the kin and slang. that's a <laughs> <laughs> it's the kinsling planning gazebo yeah exactly uh, plot yeah. your kinslangs here, and then, but up here, this would be more like the public oratory one, right? Or musical performances, or whatever. Um, and then, of course, this I assume is food and drink, which is why we have the grapes on it, right? So the buffet is in here, right? Yep. And uh, you know, the buffet and the 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 wine barrel and 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 everything else is is in there. Um, so yeah, I I I I'd kind of refreshing entertainment place we could you know there could totally have been um uh you know food and drink uh uh yeah tiny souvenir rings of power as somebody suggested um uh, the hops make me wonder if they're catering to the foreign market there then i I wonder you mean the dwarvish market yeah 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 um right get your wine over here and your beer over there right we don't know that the elves don't. I mean, yeah. You know, yep. they could be all in for the IPAs and the sours and stuff. Could be, could be. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's the there's only one piece of evidence that we have that suggests that elves prefer wine to beer. And that's Legolas's comment about sooner finding where they came by the wine. But there, he's it's primarily in contrast to the pipeweed that he's primarily talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, they do say that there's beer very passable, right? And then um, it's not the beer. Legolas expresses no interest in the beer, but uh, wants to know where they came by the wine. Um, but, um, and we know that... One guy. Uh, 
one guy. One guy, exactly. One guy. Uh, one guy on one occasion. You know, like, yeah. yeah, it could totally be his personal preference. Well, it yeah, and totally, we know what his dad yeah. drinks. It's the really good stuff. Exactly. Now, we do know that they do drink wine and very potent wine uh, in his father's house. Um, but um, that doesn't mean that beer is never drunk. So, uh, um, yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I agree that um, it's um, it's not uh, the evidence that elves don't drink beer is very slim indeed. Um, so, okay. Someone was asking what to make of the window. I don't know why there's the little half moony window there at the front. There, that like little dome spout on the front. They all have them. All three of them have them. That little window and I don't know um, but I would yeah, be willing to believe that it had something to do with acoustics but I don't know maybe maybe it stops the, the sound from me trapped under the dome maybe it's uh, I don't know much about physics sound when it comes to that yeah I don't either um, I don't know what the effect of that would be in that kind of a, in that kind of a context but mm -hmm. anyway um uh, so thus far we are in the only part of Eregion where we know for a fact the elves lived like was a city that they dwelt in like what was the capital of this region and so far we found only what looks like more party spots the uh, refreshment area down here and the uh, function party on the hill uh, spot. Um, so we will see what we find. We'll continue looking at the layout. We're running out of time. I'm trying to mend my ways and not keep everybody so late again. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll stop here for tonight. Um, I feel like we, got a, we, we have a good handle on this. We'll see where the roads go and try to get a sense of... Uh, the larger area here. Um, so we'll continue that next time. Thanks everybody for joining us uh, uh, as always. Uh, and we will, we, we will be back next week, normal time through all of February. I think um, there's not going to be any questions until we get to the, um, until we get to the uh, uh, regional moot weekends and then probably I'll be okay still, but um, we'll see what happens there. Anyway, um, <laughs> Thank you, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.